The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So a fun, let's at least not be bored. And we're live. Good evening, everyone. Today's Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. It's, it's 5.02 p.m. And we are so delighted to be joined by Seamus Hughes. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Seamus, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have you. Um, <laughs> um, so, all right. So for I got to give a few little bits of data on Seamus because... Um, some people out there may not know who Seamus is, and um, I want to say, if you have read a news story involving January 6th data of any kind, like who was there, or uh, how many charges have been brought, or uh, uh, what the demographics of the people were, everybody is using Seamus's data. Uh, and there's only really two types of people, the type of people who acknowledge they're using Seamus's data and the type of people who pretend that they're not, that they're doing it themselves. Nobody actually is. Uh, and uh, so Seamus, uh, why don't you get us started uh, and uh, tell us how you became the source of documents and uh, docket analysis for every journalist in the United States? Yeah, I'm a glutton for punishment, I think. Um, so I'm a former congressional staffer, and the events of January 6th, I saw them walking the same hall as I did, but doing something completely different than I did when I was a staffer. And to be frank, it, it annoyed me. Um, and I thought to myself, there's going to be a lot of misinformation and disinformation from the day. And at the very least, the program extremism at George Washington can just provide the data to the public, have them read the primary source documents. It's going to be overwhelming at some point, but let's just get it all out there. So... The night of January 6th, we all got together on our kind of group WhatsApp. We said, let's try to, this out. There was 12 arrests the first week, and now we're at 704, 705 people as of an hour ago. Um, they come from 45 different states, D.C. They range from 18 to 81. We've got about 30,000 pages of legal documents on our site. We're going to add another 5,000 uh, in the next 12 hours if I ever sleep. And then, um, and so we've just been updating all the time. And then cross-referencing like, population sizes to county records to average age to military background i mean anything you can splice any way you can splice the data we should just do it because why not right um and we have a pretty good track record of dealing with kind of pacer which is a god-awful system for court records but we've we figured it out tracking kind of ISIS cases prior so so i just set it up and see what happens and, and damned if the public didn't like it i don't know so what is the project on extremism because i think most people who hear that name uh before this year would have associated you guys with, you know, tracking ISIS cases and and studies of of uh, of uh, Islamist extremist organizations. Yeah. So the, the program on extremism, uh, we launched about six years ago at GW. And the, the idea was like, listen, everybody, everything taken in the world does really good work on international terrorism and very few folks do kind of nonpartisan 
non-advocacy work on extremism in America. And so we started, because um, we launched 2015, ISIS was kind of recruiting an unprecedented pre uh, clip in the US. So we did a lot of work on looking at the ISIS in America cases, like 200 plus cases of that, interviewing prosecutors, defense attorneys. The, the MO for us is always kind of just the facts, ma'am. So if I don't know the information, I'm gonna get it. We're not political in nature. Never hear me opine on the finer points. We'll, we'll see how the show goes, but you'll never hear me opine on the finer points of presidential elections and things like that. You know, if if the question is, does a travel ban work or not? My answer is not, let's talk about the politics. My answer is the vast majority of ISIS cases are US citizens and as such, the travel ban doesn't work, right? So there is data behind that without kind of setting off kind of 50% of the, of the room on all of those things. And that's always been our, our touch point. Um, my background is kind of doing congressional investigations. So like I started my career working under reporters and journalists who became congressional investigators and they were diggers in nature, meaning like if they didn't know the information, they were going for it. And I've always taken that approach. If I don't know the answers, I'm getting on a plane to Chicago, I'm, I'm shoehorning a prosecutor and I'm asking him a question until he answers it, or I'm going to go talk to a convicted terrorist or extremist or things like that. My early career was looking at like white supremacy and neo-Nazism. I did a little bit more on ISIS and Al Qaeda when I was in the intelligence community. And now it kind of feels like I'm doing 50, 50 um, now. And that's kind of the nature of where we are in extremism in America. All right. So one more question yeah. to set it up. Uh, uh, when you look at the year of uh, data about the one, one six perps uh, and the Justice Department's record, the Attorney General spoke today, defended the way the Justice Department had conducted itself, uh, is the numbers are large. On the other hand, they don't inc include a lot of the people who a lot of liberals would want to indict. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at this record of a year of prosecutions of 1-6 perps, does it strike you as a record to be proud of or a record that is still in development or a record that is uh, inadequate given the nature of the material and the nature of the uh, uh, violence that was done? Yeah, I think it's the first two, right? It's, it's a record to be proud of and it's a record still in progress. Meaning that if you look at 705 cases in DC, that is twice the number of federal cases DC federal courts ever taken in a year. So they're completely inundated in the system. Um, the FBI is moving off agents from ISIS and white collar cases to domestic extremism cases. They're moving prosecutors on these cases. It's the largest investigation in the FBI's history, which is saying something, right? Uh, and, and DOJ is kind of inundated for it. They got 300,000 tips from the public got to weed through, 14,000 hours of body camera video, you know, you name it, uh, geofencing of the entire location. It's a lot of discovery you got to pass along, and those things are going to take a while. And Garland, what he was interested in, it felt a little defensive, his speech today. It was like, you know, we're trying our best to do all of these. You know, an honest assessment says 705 ain't bad for, for building a case very quickly on these things. And this makes sense. You're going to kind of prosecute your low-level cases, like clear the deck, build your, your chain of evidence, and then maybe you move on to conspiracy charges, what they're doing for the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys in the spring. And then we can have a conversation about the, the larger question of, of folks that may not have crossed the legal threshold of getting on trespassing, but may have inspired or provided some incitement to the riot. Um, you got to build the case till you get to that point. It's the same reason why like, if you look at the January 6th select committee, like the first four or five months was just sending out oversight letters. 
And now we're starting to get some reactions, right? We're starting to get some information, some evidence, and it's telling a story that we didn't know before. This is going to take a while. And I think that, you know, folks tend to think, one, the sentencings are too short. Well, the answer is misdemeanors are getting sentenced because they're misdemeanors and they get sentenced shorter, shortly. And the other thing is, it's a lot of information you got to get through. It's going to take forever yes. to get to that point. We don't have a full picture of January 6th of the prosecution of it. We've got at least another, if I had to guess, another two to 300 people that are going to get prosecuted by DOJ. I know from talking to my, my former friends, at, well, my current friends, but former colleagues at the FBI and DOJ is that they're still working the cases, right? They're still getting information. They're still writing the indictments. Like there's a guy today I picked up, Bob Snow, which is a, Lovely mm-hmm. character who um, who peed on a column, uh, <laughs> on a column. Uh, Very canine in nature. <laughs> yes, urinated in a column in the Capitol, which is a, apparently not destruction of property because nothing got ruined, but it was because nothing got destroyed. But right, but that and there's no offense of urinating on I, property. I'm sure there is somewhere in, some <laughs> in the USC code, but um, but that was a guy who admitted his guilt on November 1st to prosecutors or to mm-hmm. the FBI. And what is it? You know, January fifth, they've got around to, to filing the indictment. It takes time to do this stuff. Um, you got to get the clerks together, you got the prosecutors together. We're getting there, but it's going to be a yeah. while. It did feel very educational the speech today, and I wanted to ask your opinion. Do you think that the committee regarding January sixth would perhaps be better served by providing a little bit more educational context than they have to the late, the average layperson, or, or have you? Do you think they've done a good enough job? in doing so? I think the select committee is building their committee um, while they're flying the plane at the same time. I mean, they're still staffing up folks and they're still saying, I mean, they're doing very interesting work and the type of oversight letters that I would have written are the ones they would have wrote. Um, No, I don't, I don't think they're going to show their cards yet. And I think it makes sense from a political play to do so. The Garland speech felt a little bit to me like it was a rally the troops speech, right? You guys are tired. You've been doing a lot of work. And maybe the Washington Post will cover what I'm saying, but I don't give a shit. I really want to talk to the prosecutors in this room or on Zoom on this. Um, and, and thank you. I don't, I mean, there's something to be said about facts. I just don't see if if Benny Thompson gave a, a speech like that, I just don't see it getting the same level of traction as say a Garland would when it came to just kind of just the facts, ma'am, approach to it. Um, you know, that's not to say people aren't going to discount Garland's stuff, but there's something to be said about a nonpartisan, for lack of a better word, um, person delivering it. How do you read Garland's apparent promise that there's more to come? Uh, So for those who have not seen, did not watch the speech or listen to the speech today, he made four points in rapid sequence that strike me as together significant. One is he said, you you know, we, we're dealing with the small stuff first because of the workload burden on the courts and prosecutors. Things are going to get more substantial as we as we clear the decks of these misdemeanor cases. Uh, number three, uh, that we're uh, that you typically resolve uh, overt cases before you get to the quieter stuff uh, mm-hmm. because overt overt cases beget uh, less overt cases. And four, uh, and this is the critical one, that they're committed to going after everybody, holding accountable everybody who was responsible, irrespective of 
their position and whether they were there. Yeah. So I can see two ways to read this. I'm curious which one or if something else moves you. One so, is one is there's a couple hundred more people they haven't indicted yet and we're going to yeah. get them all. And the second is, you know, don't don't complain at me yet that we haven't uh, dealt with the war room at the Willard and, you know, you know, the members of Congress who were doing stuff, those are going to be the last people to get indicted. And we're going to get every cooperator we can first. And I'm aware that those cases are there. And uh, uh, be patient. We've got our eye on it. And those cases are coming. How do you read it? So um, I think it reads entirely in where you sit. So the way I read it, and it's probably kind of um, more of a conversation that I've had with other people kind of within the main justice, that, um, not necessarily a conversation with the war room in the Willard, but really more like the Stuart Rhodes of the world um, that were not there. Stuart Rhodes is the head of the Oath Keepers. Right. Who were not there, but encouraged their followers to do so, or the, the leadership of a number of Proud Boy chapters around the country. Um, so this is not to say, like, you know, I could be surprised that they indict seven congressmen um, to do it. But I really I think that was more of a line towards those organizations and individuals than it was towards the politicians. But I think it was very clever in the way he wrote it because it kind of tamped down or at least let a level of speculation to get to that point where that feeds a little bit more time. Regardless, this is also to say, like, they're not really sure, um, to be honest. Right. So I, I'm not. I'm not naive enough to think that prosecutors are not political in nature in, in some cases, but there is something to be said that, you know, a lot of these national security prosecutors are not, are going to go where the facts lead them in, in most of these cases. And so if it gets there, it gets there. And if it doesn't get there, it doesn't. Um, you know, we always, they're going to get to a point of prosecutorial discretion um, where they could build a case with some of these folks, um, you know, in a war room somewhere. But they also may decide not to for a variety of different reasons. Um, I don't think they've reached that point. I don't think they're anywhere near that point. It also struck me a bit in the speech today that there was an acknowledgement of the precedence that this is going to set. And I think it's just also very appropriate considering Merrick Garland's history as a judge and his consideration of the different judicial histories also at play. And he, I was a bit surprised that he referenced voting rights in this speech, but I was curious to see what everyone else's reactions were. Yeah, what did you think of that? The tying of the January 6th insurrection, the, so the three big themes of the speech were prosecuting the insurrectionists, uh, prosecuting people who commit threats against public officials or flight crews and and taking voting rights seriously. Uh, do you see that as a fundamentally sort of political appeal to the Democratic base or as a coherent uh, linked set of prosecutorial priorities for the Justice Department? Again, I, I think it was a, a conversation to Department of Justice employees. And those are the three areas that DOJ employees care a great deal about, right? Threats to election officials and the rule of law, threats to folks. There's not to say there's not a secondary benefit of, of saying this to the public in general, but his audience, I, I think his audience was, was more um, DOJ there. You know, I, you know, Garland was interesting when he... Um, when he talked a little bit about um, the judges, right? 
and that judges have made a kind of a determined effort to speak a little bit more freely about what they saw there and things like that. It is interesting when you look at it. I mean, judges are, are sometimes going past what DOJ has asked for the guidelines uh, in some cases because they think they need to put their finger on the scale and say that was unacceptable um, in the way they, they answer it. The other thing is, is precedent does matter too, but investigative tactics matter. So if you look at geofencing, so this is the idea of like, here's the capital. That's not what the capital looks like, but here's the capital, right? Every phone that was in the capital in that hour time frame, we're going to, whoever pinged against a cell tower nearby, we're going to run those numbers past our database and we're going to interview every single one of them. Geofencing has been used in robberies and arson cases around the country a good amount, but not as much as they're doing it here. And so if they're set, they're setting a precedent to be able to do large scale investigations in the future in the way that they're doing investigative tactics. The other thing they're doing, which I think is, is relatively clever, is if you read the lines of the criminal complaints, you know, they always say, you know, sedition hunters look for this or a tip from the public said this or something like that. I'm reading it as parallel reconstruction or parallel investigations, meaning they got the information from facial recognition or other tools that they have. But damned if they can't explain it to a judge in a different way so that it's not to tip their hand on other things, too. Yeah. You read through the lines on that. You get that a lot in these cases. Yeah. Um, so hi, Seamus. Um, hi. Sorry, I've been sitting here quietly because I came in late. Um, so, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know what the norms were for this stuff. No, I mean yeah. we're we're making them up as we go along, like the rest of the world with everything right now. <laughs> um, so, uh, but uh, welcome to the show and thank you so much for coming on, um, especially on the eve of such an important uh, um, thing to kind of talk about and remember when you're out. Um, but that like remembering part was actually kind of what I was wondering if you'd be willing to pivot to. Um, because I was, I'm kind of, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately are, you know, as this uh, is kind of like the, the way that culture takes up um, political moments. And so you have something like, and everyone knows that this is one of my favorite movies who watches this show, but all the president's men and kind of the telling of all the president's men alongside kind of the whitewater, but actually it wasn't the whitewater investigation at all. It was not the official investigation. It like stops way before the investigation and gives this false sense of like kind of how much happened, how quickly. Um, and so I think that there is kind of this interesting relationship between history and culture and like all, of, I mean, not, I mean, there surely is, uh, but I'm kind of go I'm like interested in even now the documentaries that are coming out about this moment or the fictionalized culture that's going to come out of this moment shaping our collective memory about what happened in this moment. Yeah. And I'm just really curious about what your thoughts are, um, having kind of just been in it for a year. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a couple concerns and a couple things to look forward to, right? The, the first concern is that we're clearly living in a world of two alternate realities when it comes to January 6th. So folks that, that see the videos and read the court records say this is what happened and this was an attack on democracy or whatever you want to call it, right? And then other folks saying this is government overreach, this is prosecution of a, of a protest and things like that. And it's not quite clear to me that, that facts are going to get into that echo chamber in the in the short term so then it behooves us as, as the program extremism or the select committee or inspector generals to just like lay it out there and hope for the best that history gets its shit together and, and, and puts it together in a way that makes sense now my concern is that 
unlike say the Watergate days or things like that, there's an oversaturation of information. It almost becomes like the background noise of it. You know, there's seven different documentaries on January 6th coming out tomorrow. Like I'm gonna go. Oh, Google. I said Whitewater, didn't I? I meant Watergate. Yeah, sorry. You, you, you said Whitewater, but we knew what you meant. We all knew. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Just was like, I was like, wait, that's not okay. Yes. Thank you yeah. for correcting me. No, it's suddenly Seamus. <laughs> I, I don't know what the norms are. This I'm just trying to figure this out. So it was a teapot or scandal? I'm, I don't know. It was a um, pot dome, a dome pot. A pot <laughs> that isn't a dome. That is bribery. Um, so the oversaturation, like there's there's a bunch of documentaries coming out. Will it cut through the noise? I don't know if it will. One of them's from us. Right. Right. Tomorrow, you all should listen to it. I yeah. can't wait. I I. I yeah. Very excited. I just heard about that. I'm excited about this. But I asked Seamus because I know what you're going to say, Ben. So I'm what is on his like his complete naive opinion. But no, I and like, but I am kind of just interested in all of your thoughts on this. Uh, if like, I, I wonder what we're going to say about this moment ten years from now, um, and whether we're going to see it as a as a one day event or a three year event or how or both. Um, yeah. I would, I would separate the two um, in terms of the, the event itself. The question of kind of societal norms, uh, mainstream and of extremism, politicians ignoring what happened that day is one stream of stuff of which I cannot solve and I don't see it getting solved anytime soon, right? The question of whether January 6th mattered for extremism in general is a question we can answer, which is, yes, it did, but not. there is reason to be hopeful. Meaning that if you look at January 20th, you know, two weeks later, not a whole lot of folks showing up. Justice for January 6th rally, not a whole lot of folks showing up. A, a fracturing of the movement of folks that were there that day, infighting of, of the personalities that were running that place. The, the, the soccer dads from Missouri are not showing up to, to another January 6th. Now, that's not to say we won't see kind of a, a large scale group like that, but it, it stamps it down. Particularly so because those groups are saying, don't show up anymore. It's it's a false flag operation, whatever the hell that means, right? Or it's an FBI honey trap and don't show up. And so it's going to tamp down the kind of large scale stuff. And then you're only left with like the true believers through and through, right? The, the hardened guys um, there. And there's something to be, to be said about the positivity of that, right? Um, there's also be something to be said that we actually haven't had a major terrorism attack in the U.S. in the last year. And, and I'm trying to figure out how to balance saying that out loud with the idea that something could go off at any moment. Um, but we should take a step back and reflect on it, right? We've had these small scale attacks, these small attacks, these, these um, you know, murders and reciprocal radicalization and everything you're seeing, but not another January 6th in nature. And, and so I don't think- point. And so let, let's talk about why. I mean, if I were an organizer of January 6th, I don't think I would have been demoralized by uh, the outcome. I, you know, it was hugely consequential. Um, if you're an organizer, you probably didn't get arrested. Um, hmm. And um, and maybe you have civil litigation against you, but maybe you don't. Um, and so why not? Do it again. Why has there not been a million and a half MAGA march or a, you know, really stop the steal this time uh, rally uh, that that gathered any substantial number of people? 
because January 6th provided a, a, a perfect storm in a way you hadn't seen, right? You had, again, wrong word, but mainstream politicians advocating for it, right? Uh, mainstream's the wrong, wrong word for it, but um, folks advocating for it. Uh, you had... But just really quickly, can you say what you what you do, like who you're thinking when you say mainstream? Just yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, have no idea anymore. A president sure. of the United States. Right. I, I mean, if around... here, it's going to be wild. Wait, really? Do you think, like, seriously, you think of MGT, MJT, like, or sorry, MTG as being yeah. so mainstream? I, I don't mean mainstream in terms of the terms of 51%. I mean mainstream as part of one of two political parties in the country. Oh, um, okay. Sorry, I should clarify that. I'm sorry, very, yeah. Like, um, again, I don't talk about politics a lot, so sometimes I stumble on my words. Um, but I mean in terms of, like, uh, we elected folks that say these things um oh dear yeah so you had that you had QAnon talking about kind of this storm that's coming you had uh technology companies that were completely asleep at the ball at the wheel because they've been focused on isis and al-qaeda for the last five years and didn't really want to touch either um talking about politics but also didn't train their folks up on what to look for in terms of content moderation and and the FBI and DOJ kind of pushing everything to the state level on cases and not taking a federal look at it and not kicking the tires on the Oath Keepers and things like that. And so everything coalesced towards that. Now, if you look at the two organized groups, you look at the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, let's ignore the three percenters for a second, right? Because everyone does, 97% of people do. So if you look at the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, um, they took different paths post-January 6th. Oath Keepers, it doesn't have the resiliency one would think for an organization as large as it was before January 6th. Um, Proud Boys moved away from a national model and went back down to their local model, their state level model. They've done pretty good in terms of recruitment and radicalization and events and public things um, that they just don't rise to a national media focus. But, you know, Vice News had a story today about the 113 events that, that the Proud Boys have had around the country in the last year. And they've just kind of been part of the background noise of this. And they have a level of resiliency, which I think is the model to use if I'm an extremist group. Um, get away from the place that gets you the limelight. Just keep turning along, doing your thing. And we'll get to a point you can get some good, good traction. So I, can you guys hear me? Okay. So I had a quick question, um, just kind of just circle back to the idea of mainstream politicians calling for this extreme event and um, I put mainstream in quotes just as a, we're going to use it in this conversation um, but I want to talk about megaphones and private actors and their role because when we talk about like political like realities and the fact that we have um, we're still struggling with what this means as like a cultural identity I think quite a bit when we think about a private company like Twitter removing the microphone of the president of the United States yeah how is that similar to other extremist groups whose leaders are removed or their message remo is removed because of amplification? And how much should we as just a populace be really focusing on the the, hmm, the responsibility there? Yeah. Uh, and, and perhaps that should be taken up by our government or perhaps it should just stay with the private actors. And so I apologize. That's a little all over the place, but no, no, it's not. I think it's a reflection of the, the larger question. Right. So the short answer is we've largely ceded um, counter extremism and counterterrorism, even domestic counterterrorism to 
large billion dollar companies in social media. Um, we're not setting the stage on that. And that's a reflection of, of the laws we have in place, but also just a laziness and sometimes and just not wanting to touch the third rail on these things. Um, from a purely factual standpoint, deplatforming does work. It has an, a, a, an effect on uh, recruitment, radicalization, and getting large scale of numbers. And you could look at an ISIS case, you could look for a white supremacy case, you could look for a QAnon case. If they move from Facebook to and Twitter to Telegram, their numbers drop a lot. Now, the folks that are left are hardcore true believers through and through, but you're not kind of stumbling on a QAnon uh, channel uh, on Telegram. you got to kind of already be primed by that point. Um, so it does matter. Um, I think platforms should be able to set their own priorities and their own standards because, you know, I believe in the Constitution. But um, but at some point, though, I, I I do think the U.S. government should. I, I don't know how to describe we shouldn't just give up this space. Well, it's a private company. Don't know what to do with it. My bad, right? Like that's not an acceptable answer for me from it. On the other hand, I don't really have a good example or a good solution for it. I want to ask about what your major lessons from a year of watching this data have been. So if I had you know, how is the world different from what you expected this data to look like? How is the world more or less what you expected this data to look like? Uh, what have you learned? Um, I learned that I was wrong on my first initial assessment on January 7th or even March 2020. Um, so 20 what was your initial assessment and what do you see now? My, my initial assessment was um, we should be there that that we had a large number of organized groups that planned that event and what like the proud boys and the oath keepers not planned but planned to attack the event right what you find looking the data is actually it's pedestrian in nature um a lot of these folks are typical random yoga instructor construction workers realtors not any kind of watch those core. yoga instructors man right. yeah you know wait I, are you saying that it was you. like it, like you went from thinking it was a like more of a plot to finding it, the data supported the idea that it was more organic. Yeah. Yes. Um, now in that's the moment. Yeah, that's a different than who paid for the buses for everyone to come down to New, New Hampshire. That's a different. No, of plot. course. Yeah. But but the event itself, you know, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers take a lot of uh, coverage in the news because they wear the same colors and they walk in fancy walkie talkies mm. and all that stuff. But like for the most part, this is a a small scale mass radicalization moment uh, or mass mob moment uh, and, and a use of support. And that is in, mon in many ways, it's alarming because it's not alarming uh, or it's not alarming because it is alarming. I don't know what the, the right terminology is for it, but it's just, it's not what you would expect of, of why these, these folks are showing up. Okay. So I want to, I want to argue the other side of this for a minute, please. So we have a piece coming out tomorrow from Roger Parloff about the Oath Keepers and uh, Proud Boys indictments. And he makes the point that there's, of the 700 plus uh, uh, indictees, there's only about 40 of them who are charged with conspiracy. Um, and uh, I read that and say, okay, if I'm a, if I'm a, oh, and he argues further that the Proud Boys who are among the 40 who are, are, are charged with conspiracy 
are the basically the first to breach, the first to go through the windows, the first to destroy property. And so I'm looking at this with my Leninist hat on. <laughs> and I'm saying this actually shows the value of a vanguard party. Mm. That you have a bunch of what the Proud Boys call normies, like thousands, tens of thousands of them show up. And maybe they're violence prone, but they're not actually planning to do anything. They're planning to have a stop the steal rally. But you have 40 people show up planning violence, planning to get the others stoked up. And uh, and all of a sudden you have a capital insurrection. And so why isn't the takeaway from your point? Well, actually, it shows how malleable a large group of people is to a small group of people who are coordinated and are acting with will and purpose. Well, you might have convinced me, Ben. Um, but it, let me let me do a but, counter. But, but that cuts the other direction yeah, from me, the argument do, you were let making. Let me do a counter argument for this, which is of the individuals who who assaulted police officers. I I struggle to think of a lot of power proud boys and oath keepers. They tended to be the randoms, the normies uh, of it, and so the people that actually committed actual violence on police officers of naming and things like that. They tend to be the soccer dads from Missouri. They don't actually tend to be the organized groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. So maybe they breached the Capitol, knocked down the windows, and got everybody in. But when it came to actual kind of like punching the cop in the face. But that's all the better from their point of view. They, you know, hey, we sh we showed up and we turned this uh, uh, peaceable, if violence-prone mob into an army against the cops and you know, we didn't even have to chant hang Mike Pence. They they did it for us. We didn't have to assault the cops. They did it for us. Um, you know, it 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 shows or I'm arguing for the sake of the conversation, and I may even believe uh, shows that, you know, a small number of people who know what they're doing um, can really take an event like that and and shape it toward their own purposes. Yes, I, I think so. Although, again, you know, not everything is a diehard movie. So these the the, the 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 evil guys are not as organized and competent to be able to steal an entire bank. Is that a, is are you saying that this isn't a Christmas movie? That we're not in a Christmas movie right now? Jesus, I, 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 this, fighting I, words. Politics and diehard are the two third rails for me. Um, what I'm saying is, yes, do they take advantage of it? Yeah, but these are not guys that are well, it's not a well-oiled machine. I mean, they're competent to a point. Um, they're still the guys who can't shoot straight and don't delete their signal uh, uh, chats and and don't do X, Y, and Z that you would do for operational security on these things. And that's kind of a reflection of extremism in, in the U.S. or in, in general, right? I mean, yeah, there's a reason, not, you know, the, the, they're not KSM. The, the, well, yeah, even that, when you, the, the 93 bombing, the guy went back to get his, his deposit back from his rental car when he blew up the, the yeah. World Trade Center. So, like, occasionally humans are just not competent when it comes to planning these No, things. that deposit was a lot of money for him. Yeah. I like how you guys are so generous with occasionally. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I like the, I like Ben's point a lot, but I actually wonder if it points to, to, to two different sets of motivations. One that is actually at a second kind of order of politics and kind of ideology. And one that is like people who just feel personally aggrieved and angry. And so are more triggered, like they might go there under the auspices or the beard of being there for political or ideological reasons. Um, but the real reason Sakhar Dev from Missouri is there is because he got laid off because he feel by somebody who was from like India and feels like, or like, and his job was replaced by somebody who was in India and he's just very angry and he wants kind of like a different, you know, on and on it goes, you know, like, you know, so like part of like, there is, it strikes me that like some of, some of what might've happened and what you kind of are speaking to and that really resonates with me, Seamus, is like people are just, disorganized motherfuckers and yeah. are also pretty base and angry and uh and if you watch the videos everything in those videos feels very organic and disorganized it feels like a tipping point of a crowd it feels like a psychology experiment with like prisoners like it's just it's kind of like it just feels like you're watching something kind of fall um and uh and a and a and uh just so much anger foment um and like a loss of kind of like losing like as crowds do losing the fact that they are hitting other human beings and that like these are people in these like in these police outfits and these are the same people waving thin blue line you know flags and things like that so there's just like there's a real loss of like second order reasoning i guess is like kind of what i was thinking yeah i mean we, we have this report coming out tomorrow um looking at our assessment for the last year we added a new category called spontaneous clusters before we had organized clusters and now we have also have spontaneous clusters and these are yeah. individuals who assaulted police officers who didn't know each other until that moment and they decided to kind of team up and do this um yeah the other thing i would mention is we have to put it in context. This is a hero complex for most of them, right? If you think the Republic is going down because everything in your social media feed, in your news world has told you this is a stealing of the election and you need to save the Republic. Again, wrong. But if you think that, then this is the reason why 80% of them documented their own crime in social media in real time. It's not because they're bad criminals. They are bad criminals. It's because they didn't think they were doing anything wrong, right? And so that hero complex plays a, a huge role into it. Yeah. If you think your public is going to lose unless you storm the Capitol, unless you push that cop, then you damn well should push a cop, right? And so it rises to that level for them, especially if, if everyone around you is pushing a cop. Which partly explains, uh, by the way, why so many of them didn't just uh, post uh, these uh, uh, um social media stuff and take videos, but turn around and talk to the FBI when the FBI comes around and interviews them a few days later. Yeah. All right. We should go to the audience. Okay. Hold on one second. Oh dear. Hi, David. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, the floor hi. is yours, David. Um, Mr. Seamus, thank yes. you so much for your efforts. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I follow you on Twitter and everybody should follow you on Twitter. If you want to learn what is going to get 
published tomorrow in the Washington Post. Follow CMS today and you will learn it because he scoops everybody. So that's awesome. Um, uh, I think of uh, Watergate and um, follow the money. So my question is, with respect to the money, because you don't get all of these people, including disenfranchised, unemployed folks from eight states away to drive to D.C. and hang out in fancy hotels. That doesn't just happen on accident. What do we know about where the money is coming from and what do we think uh, the rest of the story might be? So we don't have an indication in any of the court records where the money is coming from. I would say that the socioeconomic um, background of these folks tends to veer towards um, well-off or at least um, stable job um, prospects. So it's not a whole lot of money to get in a van. Um, I mean, Jenna Ryan's different. She took a private jet, right? But her friend had private jets. Um, but it's not a whole lot of money to get there. I always take a private jet to my insurrection. Well, it's because it's because you're COVID conscious. So I appreciate that. I, I don't, I don't you for really, your yeah, I don't I don't want to travel with the mere people. Yeah. Um yeah. I, I think it's uh you know the hoi polloi do not belong in my revolution. <laughs> always Oh dear. <laughs> like a typical Leninist. I, I agree. <laughs> That's fine. I, I, I don't like, why would they, I mean, if they want to ride, they can ask me to join me in my jet, but geez, they're, they're they are presumptuous. COVID conscious, but environmentally questionable. Right. Next up we have Richard. Um, he's video cooperates. Hi Richard. The floor Hi. is yours. Hi, um, Seamus. Thanks for coming on. And uh, of I, I had a question about how much uh, this is really on behalf of a, got a bunch of data heads and data people in the audience and color heads. And I'm, so I was wondering how much publicly available data is available on January 6th? And is it centralized in several, you know, one place or in a couple of places easier to get to? And what are some of the uh, outstanding questions that um, uh, you know, that need to be answered that this data might uh, give us. And um, also, and if it's publicly available, is there like a GitHub repository or something for it? Yeah, uh, so there's not a GitHub repository. Our, our court records are available on our website, extremism.gw.edu. You click on the research and then click on um, Capitol Hill, and that'll get you to 30,000 pages of the legal documents. And an Excel spreadsheet we update every time there's a new arrest and the county data and the state data. Now, there's a lot more information in the court records that we don't provide for a variety of different kind of university re reasons of like Twitter handles and social media profiles and all of those things that one could mine uh, in terms of a collection uh, uh, when you look at the court records. Um, where else would I look for kind of public records on it? Um, I mean, obviously, Lawfare, they've got the landing page of, of everything you would possibly need on January 6th, not only the court records, but also kind of the the, the select committee and things like that. Um, I'm also not opposed to making it more accessible. So if you find that our website is not useful for data collection, just ping me and I'll figure out how to fix it. Um, like, I don't know what a GitHub is. I mean, I know what it is, but I don't know how to upload it. So like, if you walk me through it, I'll just figure it out for you. Um, when we set up the program, like it wasn't to be sitting in an ivory tower. Like I, nobody would let me in an ivory tower. I wouldn't fit. Right. What we set it up was really to, to, to get to a point where we could provide the information to the public and let the public sort it out. We provide a little bit of analysis, maybe put our fingers on the scale a little bit, but not too much. Um, 
because I generally think, and this is a being questioned a lot in recent years, that people, if given the data, can think for themselves and get to a, a good conclusion on these things. But also, I mean, I, it is not your job to tell everybody what to think about this. Yeah. You know, that's that's what newspapers and commentators, you're, you're a document and data analyst and, and provider. And um, I mean, obviously you have your opinions, but I think it would actually undermine what you were doing if you were constantly opining about it. Yeah, and that's really, I have to bite my tongue quite a bit. I mean, I have very strong opinions on how much Pacer sucks, and I have strong opinions on other things on January 6th. But, yeah, I, but Pacer sucking is a fact, not a, yeah. it's not I really a matter in, of I didn't know where people felt on it, but I felt like the but, crowd would be... But bad. I actually feel like as somebody who has done work that would have been impossible had Pacer not sucked. Yeah. Because, I, you know, when we did the study of sextortion... If it had been possible to just, you know, type sextortion into um, uh, uh, a reasonable search engine and have all the cases come up, there would have been no cause for the big study that we did. So I feel like I benefit from Pacer sucking. Yeah, no, I, I clearly I have a consulting gig for the I've got a New York Times deal now. It's it's good for me, but I bad for the public. So let's I would hope that I lose my job, I guess, is what my advocating for. I'm, I'm OK with it. Um, you, you know, the, the last viewer asked one more question, which is what is one more question? What's one more thing I don't know yet? I don't have a full extent, again, putting aside the war room in the Willard, I don't have a full ex extent of what the pre-planning was for the organized groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And, and DOJ, um, early on in their charging of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, talked a lot about how it was pre-planned to breach the Capitol that day and damned if they don't bring it up again since then. And so it was in the initial charging documents, but not now. And maybe they're holding their, their, their cards close to their chest. Maybe they're waiting for discovery, maybe all of those things. But I haven't seen much yet to get a full sense of it. Right? I know there was meet meetings. I know there was Zoom meetings, but I don't really have it. We'll get a sense of that when they do, when they do the trials in the spring, which will, of course, get pushed in the summer or in the fall. But, um, but we're not there yet. All right, and then I'm going to ask David to come on screen. Um, thank you for taking my question. Seamus, it's great to see you guys. And I've been following Ben and Kate since the beginning of the pandemic and uh, finally get to be on show. So thank you so much. Uh, Seamus, my question is you. I, I know you're an expert in fusion centers and uh, things related to that. Yeah, my question was about the DC police working with the Capitol police and, uh, you know, today, uh, you know, I was looking at the January 6th committee stuff and the, you know, the, the head of the Capitol police was saying that they were, they've got some analysts on this and they're working on that kind of thing. But what is your sense, I guess, in terms of, do they really have a handle on it? Uh, is there a good fusion center kind of environment you think in DC where we're not going to see this kind of thing escalate again? And of course, with a commander in chief that's going rah rah right uh, you know yeah. it's hard to say but what are your thoughts on that and do, do you think uh, that they can really pull it off because i know fema dhs are all trying to work together with the fbi but yeah what are your thoughts on that um at the risk of not being invited to the dhs christmas party every year um there are good fusion centers and there are bad fusion centers i think dc is a very good fusion center um i think it's a very small team um but i and we saw from the charging documents they actually had a person in the crowd um reporting back they were concerned about it and i think that's that's true of a lot of the same local folks that i was talking to 
were sounding the alarm on the lead up to January 6th, and nobody was taking them seriously on this. You know, the FBI had their kind of Richmond RA office send a, a two-page nondescript memo to Capitol Hill, but like, but the state and local folks saw what was happening in real time. Now, there's a whole host of civil rights, civil liberties concerns about fusion centers and collection of Americans and all of those things. But putting that aside, I think they, they do a pretty good um, uh, job in D.C. I am not hopeful that we've learned the lessons of information sharing for January 6th. I'm just not. Um, I've looked at at the after action reports that they put out on from things, and it just seems like the word info sharing is is out there, but like not anything of, of real substance. So we should have shared more information. No, it's more than that, right? It's There's a level of coordination that requires to it. And if we get to a point where we should have shared more information, it just means that everything gets pushed and then nothing gets read. And I'm worried that we're going to get to that point on this, too. Um, the pro but the, I think the problem was not fundamentally an information sharing problem. The problem was an analytic failure yeah. and maybe a collection failure. And it's on the part less to me of DHS, although I suppose if one puts one faith in INA to do anything other than spy on me, um, uh, you get what you deserve. Um, it's a, this is an FBI problem. And the fact that neither Jill Sanborn nor Chris Ray has been raked over the coals about this strikes me as very hard to understand. You know, every journalist in the country was writing, boy, sounds like there's going to be a storm the, the Capitol thing tomorrow. And the FBI did not warn the Capitol Police that its posture was was un, was unreasonable given the given you know and Chris Ray's defense of this is oh we had a gazillion open uh, 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 predicated investigations but we had no actionable intelligence except from Norfolk. Well, maybe you predicated the wrong frickin' investigations, dude. Um, yep. I just don't understand why the FBI has not gotten a heavier um, uh, set of questions than it has. Uh, its answers have been, frankly, unreasonable. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this. You're usually in a hammock when we talk, but when, when we do, it, it talks about... Is this garbage? Ben can go over to his hammock. I can right go now. over to the hammock. Well, I'm, I'm going to go drinking. There was a lot more promises that <laughs> I'm going to power through it with you guys for the next few minutes. But like, we have to try it again better next time, guys. Um, but we could, I'll go we over to the hammock. I'll pour myself another drink. Uh, I don't want to upset got, you. I don't want to let we you down. A giant hammock. And we yeah. all did in lieu of fun from the okay, never mind. I got anyway. this idea. Okay. But let's let's actually dive into that question because it's a really important one, right? Um, the FBI director is presenting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee two or three months after January 6th. Um, Senator Klobuchar asks him, well, why didn't you know about January 6th? And he says, we had a Norfolk memo and the Norfolk memo went to the Capitol. What? If you have a Norfolk memo and the only thing you have is a Norfolk memo, that is a systematic and systemic failure at the FBI for analysis. I don't think there was only a Norfolk memo, but if that's what you're hanging your hat on, then something's wrong. You've got a clear shop at the analysis shop. Right? And also, if you have 2,000 open investigations and not one of them is following social media that says hashtag, you know, storm the Capitol, then you're investigating a very, a very peculiar set of 
domestic extremists relative to the the actually active ones. Yeah, and and then you can't square the circle with with that comment or the FBI director's comment and Jill Sandberg's comment to Senate Homeland a month later, where she says we did knock and talks to active investigations and told them not to travel on January six because we were worried about January six. So either you were worried about January six to the point where you can do more than the least intrusive means, which if you're knocking on the door as an FBI agent is more than the least intrusive means, which is the FBI's kind of Bible of how you do investigations. If you're doing that, then that means you're worried about it. It means it's more than the Norfolk memo. So I'm trying to marry those two things up together at the same time. Just, it doesn't make sense to me. A quick Vic. question slash clarification. Norfolk memo just means that it came from the Norfolk office, right? Yeah, yeah the Norfolk okay. field office produced this two page, hey, it seems like some bad shit may go down in on January 6th in Washington. Yes, about um, the tunnels. So I think like not only is this impossible to reconcile, but I think it's very weird that Congress hasn't demanded any kind of reconciliation. I'm with Ben 100%. I just want to also say, just since GDF brought up the private platform's role in this and everything, I will say that there there was an interesting move that has still been under-discussed in my opinion. Oh, Ben's moving towards the hammock. Wonderful. I'm so excited about this. I want the last well, few minutes, last few minutes in the hammock here. Yeah, no, obviously. This is worth um, it. Uh, this doesn't happen for everyone. Anything for the like, Anything. Not, so. yeah. um, but I was going to say that, like, basically, um, that one of the interesting things that is under discussed, uh, you obviously know about Facebook and Twitter kind of taking down the president and things like that. And like, instituting a ban for the natural language and stop the steal as like a anti like an ex anti measure before anything even gets posted it can't go up if it says stop the steal it doesn't matter if you're talking about like a about baseball like or you're talking about an election um but like besides that like prior to all of this did you know that airbnb like proactively like dehomed like tons of people and like vrbo is starting to do this too that this is like that there are regular kinds of kinds of efforts by these platforms and i'm not saying that i condone them because they have the same problems with them as like you might um seamus uh but like they're like it seems like airbnb knew that this was gonna go down and like, how the fuck did the FBI not communicate it yeah. to like the Capitol Police for the love? And this is like, by the way, this is also one of the problems I have to your, you said at the top of this show, that like, you don't love getting into politics because you're, it's more interesting to you to ask the question of basically like, will this make a difference to stopping terrorism? Will this actually do the thing that we want it to do? Will this policy actually change something? And I think that private platforms in this regard, it's like, why do we keep looking to government to solve these problems of, of private platforms when like over and over again, we're kind of seeing that this is like not necessarily a more trustworthy mechanism for, for doing this. Yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, All right, let's, let's let Paula ask the last question today. Can I just add one last thing, Paula, before, before we jump in? which is um, absolutely not. you both no, raised no. the question of, of why either technology companies or the FBI got off the hook in Congress. And the answer is bad staffing, full stop. Um, and I think to back when I was a 22 year old staffer, I would not know to ask about 302s um, because so I was a 22 year old staffer. I actually disagree with that in the case of the FBI. Well, well I, I think the FBI got off the hook because it was 
to neither political party's advantage to make the issue be about Democrats really wanted to talk about Trump's accountability and, you know, a, a, an analytic intelligence failure at the FBI was just sort of not relevant to. Uh, and the Republicans wanted to talk about, you know, how everything was really Pete Strzok's fault and and and, the you know, the result of a a. A conspiracy against Trump that started with the Russia hoax and ended with, I, I think everybody wanted it to be the story to be something else. And so when Chris Ray comes up there and drones on about uh, their 2000 predicated investigations and a Norfolk memo, everybody's like, all right, all right. Yeah. And I should clarify, it might actually not be bad staffing. It might be bad centering. Too. Uh, <laughs> I was a for my senator sometimes went off the rails when I put a questions in front of him. So it's entirely that. So I'm sorry, I, I cut you off in your question. I'm looking forward to it. No, Paula. Um, thank you. No, you're good. So my question was, um, what are the questions about preventing this in the future that actually can be asked when you look at your data set that look pretty clear? And the second question is, and I think you addressed it a little bit, but how easy is it to read too much into the data and say that this is more organized than it was not randos? Because sometimes I think of this almost as a freak event and that it's really not going to happen again. And I don't think it's because I don't think there are malicious actors. I just think that I don't think anyone expected it could be that crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I'm somewhere in between of it. It was a freak accident and it was the greatest masterman plan in the world. Um, the typical academic with the, with the baby on it. Um, I think, I think sometimes I, we should not take too much analytical um, process in what we've seen so far. You should try your best to do preliminary assessments, but there's a lot more information that needs to come out on these criminal cases to actually opine in any real substantive way, particularly when it comes to the pre-planning, particularly when the Oath Keeper and the Proud Boys and the motions go back and forth and the transcripts happen and people flip. That's where it's going to be the most interesting uh, on it. Um, in terms of other things like the, the data sets, I think are interesting on the, on the question is um, the role of mainstream on platforms on radicalization and recruitment of the day, the role of Parler or other platforms like that. Um, I think those questions are still outstanding on these things. Um, what else? I I don't take too much information. Like there's been a, a back and forth in, a, um, in my field about this question of um, where these these defendants are coming from. So they are they coming from um, counties that overwhelmingly voted for Trump or overwhelmingly voted for Biden and things like that. I get why we want to go down that data set. I just don't think we're there yet because I think there's just such a backlog of cases that six more will swing your Orange County numbers so quickly that it will completely. So if anyone tells you like these guys primarily come from the Biden uh, counties that voted for Biden, which they do right now because they're the minority and they felt like they were under attack by the majority in their country. We're not there to make that assessment. What if what what if Bart Gelman tells you in the Atlantic that the overwhelmingly come from uh, counties where the white population has gone down by at least one percent? Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to read too much in 700 cases. I'm just I'm not going to make those assessments. Uh, we are going to leave it there. Can we just get more of him? 
like more people that say like 700 is just too small a sample size. Like where's Nate Silver? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> like... this, is, this is why they don't put me on cable, right? This yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> Figure this out. Seamus Hughes, you're a great American. Yeah. Uh, it's a fabulous data set uh, and you should all go peruse it among other things. And this doesn't get said enough about uh, this body of cases. Uh, there's just amazing stories in there. And you browse through some of these indictments and you learn that like the uh, uh, Oath Keepers had a flotilla of arms on the other side of the Potomac River and they kept them in Virginia because they thought maybe they would float them across the Potomac, yeah. uh, but they didn't. Um, there's just great stuff in there. Uh, you think it's all the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the Q shaman, but it's not. Um, so, uh, Seamus, come back and play with us sometime whenever uh, with a hammock or without. Whatever, whatever the norm is for this, I'm happy to do it. Like if you normally <laughs> have people come in here, great. If you don't, then so be it. All Did right. you prime him about the norms culture? Let the record reflect no that Seamus and I have never discussed norms or the norms of the show. Norm I has never been the word I'd describe us. You're absolutely right. I think he may have watched an episode in no! play or something. No. Garbage. You're, you're arguing evidence, not, uh, facts not in evidence right now. Uh, I, no, I'm making an inference from facts in evidence. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, we will be back on Friday. Uh, I think we're going to have Kathleen Ballou with us. She just agreed to it. To, she's going to be on on Friday. And she's going to so, bring cheese. So we're going to have Cheese Night with Kathleen on Friday. That will be 46 hours and 57 minutes from now. Uh, and until then, Kate? We don't have fun anymore, but we do have Shaman Seamus Seamus too. <laughs> really? Are you the Q Seamus? <laughs> it feels right to me. This is this is like my middle school coming right back to me. My I think I think I we gotta. Yeah, we, we, we wanted that. That would be fun. I I think yeah, we gotta we got we gotta go with that. The Q Seamus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. All right.